Warning, this episode contains adult language and mature content that is not intended for younger or more sensitive listeners. You have been warned. Welcome back to The Last House on the Left, this spooky show. We are your friendly neighborhood axe-wielding psychopaths, the ghoul babes. Friendly and axe-wielding. I mean... (laughs) I named my axe Paul. Hi, Paul. (laughs) That's a ridiculous name for an axe. And then it goes right through your head. (laughs) And then through your skull. (laughs) See, now don't you feel bad for insulting Paul? I don't. Oh, okay. I don't. (laughs) You know what? With my dying breath, I will insult Paul I will insult him twice. Still... (laughs) Stupid. <laughs> so we are the ghoul babes. I'm extremely wicked. You're not going to say Vivian? Nope. They already know my voice. <laughs> I'm shockingly evil. I'm Lauren. And I'm vile. Jade. <laughs> and in a pleasant twist of news, guess what, Spooky Nation? What? What? We finally what did it. We finally <gasps> sacrificed Quincy. <laughs> That's right. We did. I guess all it took was a small town, a time-tested, bloodthirsty tradition to the fertility gods, and a bunch of rocks. Just a couple of rocks. Yeah. All the rocks. You know, all the There's rocks. Guys, I'm here. Did, did that? Nope. What? Did you hear something? I didn't no. hear anything. Sitting right here. I, I certainly didn't hear loud and talking evidence of our abject failure. I am the one that started the recording. <sighs> all right. The town you sent me to was celebrating best little uh, small town in America. Oh, God. I want a raffle. I got a free pumpkin pie out of it. Shit. Are you kidding me? Did you at least save some of the pumpkin pie? No, you sent me there to die. <laughs> so fine. That's besides the point. I did bring you all t-shirts, though. Oh, yay. I'd rather have pie. Yeah, I'd rather have pie. Sorry, they're kid sizes. Oh. I'm sorry, I thought we were still talking about pie. Here, they're kid sizes. <laughs> it's a kid size. I'd take a kid size pie. pie. My fat ass. Are we still talking about pie? <laughs> So back again, unfortunately, even though we tried to will him out of existence, our editor and perennial bad penny, Quincy. Hi. So let me, did you wear your crown too? Did they name you king for a day or something? No, I was an outsider. They weren't going to do all that. I mean, that would have been what I would have done. I would have just taken the Burger King crown and just been like, I am Lord over all of you. (laughs) (laughs) You all must listen to my words. Fear me. The words from my mouth. I am the Burger King. Guys, he's the Burger King. What oh, should we do? I don't peas know. Peas and carrots, peas and carrots, peas and carrots. I don't know. Just give him a pumpkin pie and send just him give, on his way. Yeah, just give him a sash and let it, make him leave. I don't want to see what happens when he stays. Did you call the cops? Oh my yeah, God, like yes, an I hour ago. They're not here. They're not coming. <laughs> They're afraid too. They're terrified. <laughs> They're so scared. All right. All right. So what are we going to do this time since it failed again? But let's not bring up, you know, old wounds and rip at them a little bit and rub some salt in them. <laughs> you got me on this one. I mean, we could send him on a trip to Aspen. I mean, we could do that. Somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. You know, somewhere into the mountains. He maybe would mm. run into a snow bundy. Oh my god, I'm, I'm leaving. done. <laughs> I've had this. <laughs> 
I'm out. I'm goodbye. <laughs> and she's leaving. She's really leaving. There's the door, and it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. It really. Wow. Okay. Did you hear that? Disrespectful. <laughs> Disrespectful. <laughs> All right, fine. So we'll just send you on a trip to Aspen, Colorado, where you may or may not run into somebody who really, really, really likes crowbars. So I'm hitchhiking or driving? You have to hitchhike. Okay. Yeah. I will get yeah. my little bu- uh, bundle on a stick, and I will head on out. <laughs> we'll send you get your butt on a stick. <laughs> we'll send you well, with, a, plan. with a handkerchief on a stick and a can of beans and a pocket full of dreams. Yep. Your hobo bundle. <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> there we go. We'll see how this works. Hopefully you don't end up with more pie. <laughs> he will. <laughs> he will, you guys. He will. Somehow he will. We delve deep into the vaults of true crime last week and find ourselves there yet again. I like the vaults. I am fond of the vaults as well. <laughs> this is great. I, I've set up camp there. Don't tell anyone I don't pay rent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you heard it here first. Oh, you, you heard, heard it. You heard it. You heard nothing? <laughs> you don't know my real name? That's true. (laughs) (laughs) The subject turns back to one of our favorite topics of discussion on this show, serial killers. Mm -hmm. Woo! Woo! And while we haven't done an in-depth profile of a famous serial killer since our Jack the Ripper episode, we are going to rectify that right now. (laughs) And what better time of the year to profile the topic of this week's episode than February, the month of love, Valentine's Day, and those disgusting sweetheart candies that are made of fungal sap and drywall. Ugh, I hate those things. They're disgusting. They're awful. They're just horrid. Bone meal. Yeah, earwig honey and bone meal. I want to know who came up with those and thought they tasted good. And then they uh, want to put little messages on them. You are sweet. Well, you sure the fuck aren't. This, this is very presumptuous of you, Candy. <laughs> you, you doth do assume. It's I just, don't know. it tastes like chalk. They do. Chalk and regret. Ugh, you could probably use them as sidewalk chalk. I think you could probably, you probably could. And honestly, they taste like Tums as well. Like Tums taste oh, exactly yeah. like those. Yeah, they're like antacids. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Interesting. Good, because Valentine's Day makes me sick. <laughs> makes me absolutely rich. <laughs> as no doubt you recall, this week we are discussing the original lady killer himself, Theodore Robert Bundy, a man once described by one of his own defense lawyers as, quote, the very definition of heartless evil. Bundy shattered the mold of main sh- of the mainstream's public opinion of the typical serial killer by being so seemingly normal. That's mm-hmm. true. He was handsome. He was intelligent. He was charming. He was beauty. He was grace. He'll probably smash your face with a crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> but he was also a complete sadist and a sociopath. His brutal crimes shocked and terrorized the country, but where did it all begin? At what point did the man become the monster? Some might argue it was with the circumstances of his birth. The other one you need to kill him to take care of the details. It's like changing a tire. The first time you're careful, by the 30th time you can't remember where you left the lug wrench. Ted Bundy. Theodore Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell to an Eleanor Louise Cowell in the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. To raise young Ted, Louise moved back to Philadelphia to live with her parents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell. In order to avoid the stigma of being an unwed mother with a bastard child, Samuel and Eleanor raised young Ted as their own son, leaving the young boy to believe his grandparents were his actual parents and his mother, his sister. Though this widely held belief about Ted Bundy's childhood is contradicted by Bundy and Anne Rules, The Stranger Beside Me, 
wherein Bundy told Anne, quote, 20 years difference in age between a brother and sister, and Louise always took care of me. I just knew growing up that she was really my mother. This may have just been Bundy's way of trying to save face and his ego, however. Narcissists rarely admit their shortcomings. Things were not easy going back in Philadelphia, however. Ted's grandfather was known as an outspoken bigot who would often go out on loud, impassioned rants about his dislike of different minority and religious groups. He was physically abusive towards his wife, children, and the family dog. It is said he suffered hallucinations and would talk or argue with people who were not there. The mental illness in the family did not stop, stop with Samuel. Eleanor, Ted's grandmother, suffered from agoraphobia, depression, and periodically received electric shock therapy as treatment for her illnesses. Yeesh. So, I mean, and what's interesting is that when he talked about his childhood, which if you listen to the tapes... Um, he paints a very idyllic picture mm-hmm. of his, he doesn't talk anything about that. Like he mentions nothing about mental illness, nothing about abuse and his grandfather being racist or n- nothing like that. Like no. he paints this yeah. very like ideal picture of a childhood. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure he was embarrassed. First of all, second of all, he's definitely an egomaniac. Oh, for sure. But the dog. Yeah. yeah. When I read that part, <laughs> I'm like. Let's talk about this shit really? again. Again. <laughs> we always talk about this. Whenever there's an animal in danger, just really? The dog? Really? <laughs> yeah, I just... That, why? No need. I mean, granted, do. also don't take it out on your wife and children. Yeah. But the dog? I mean, he just overall sounded like a piece of shit. Yeah, so. yeah just garbage human. Flaming but, garbage human. Like you said, Ted never said anything of this. Everything he said was like, oh yeah, my grandfather and I had a great relationship. Yeah, and he loved his grandfather. Like, which is maybe why I don't know. Like, maybe that's where the problem started because, you know... Trying either, to emulate him? Well, that could be, and it's it could be the fact that, you know, when you, you either identify with the abuser or the abusee. So right. he identified, like, you know, because he probably got himself got, like, beat up and smacked around Mm -hmm. he figured well if i'm that person if i'm the person doling out the pain that i don't have to be the person receiving it right in this life you either get busy smacking or get busy dying i mean i don't think you die from smacking (laughs) but okay smacking with a crowbar yeah well that you will die from yes (laughs) yes 100 percent. 100 even just look threatening keep it 100 bitch slap with a crowbar (laughs) one of the most notable stories from bundy's childhood involved his aunt When he was a toddler, his aunt recalled waking up and finding young Ted placing knives near her body. She told Vanity Fair, quote, I remember thinking at the time that I was the only one who thought it was strange. Nobody did anything. In that same article, a psychiatrist by the name of Dorothy Lewis stated that said actions would only be taken by, quote, very seriously traumatized children who have either been the victims of extraordinary abuse or have witnessed extreme violence among family members. If true, it would not be a stretch to say that Samuel Cowell's abusive nature directly led to Ted's strange behavior. When Ted was six years old, he and Louise moved to Tacoma, Washington, to live with Louise's cousins. It was here that Louise met and married Johnny Culpepper Bundy, an ex-military cook working as a hospital cook. Johnny would go on to adopt young Ted and change his name from Ted Cowell to Ted Bundy. It is said that Ted was a well-behaved, quiet child, 
Unlike typical children his age, Ted preferred to be on his own, isolated and disconnected from family and friends. Louise and Johnny had four more children of their own, and with Johnny being the sole breadwinner for the growing family, Louise was left at home to care for the children without any additional help. Ted was often left alone and greatly ignored, as his parents had to deal with Ted's more demanding siblings. His extreme introversion and any developmental issues were widely unnoticed or dismissed as being related to his shyness. Aww. Shy Bundy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly how I would think of him, but no, okay. not really. Just But he was, I guess, shy in school and like... Very reserved. Reserved and quiet and even like other classmates recall him being like he didn't date really like he wasn't he wasn't popular but he wasn't unpopular he was just kind of like one of those kids that just kind of blended into the background just kind of there. Like, i'm just yeah. kind of here i'm just here to do my stuff and hit people with a crowbar and leave <laughs> i mean <laughs> most likely voted most likely to hit someone with a crowbar <laughs> he wow, brought a crowbar to prom like, wow these, one of the things these, you can vote on these are really specific <laughs> Voted most likely to hit people with a crowbar, get into a Volkswagen Beetle, and go on the lamb. Like, <laughs> like that's an oddly specific category. Like, who votes for, th- who picked this? Wow. Also, And me. yet 600 people were like, Ted. <laughs> you know who fits that exactly? Oh, that, that Theodore guy. What, what's his, yeah, Ted. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Bundy. <laughs> Even at a young age, Bundy had a propensity for violence. A member from his Boy Scout troop recalled Bundy coming up behind him once to hit him over the head with a stick. It was also said on the Netflix original Conversations with a Killer that Bundy, quote, liked to scare people. He would lay tiger traps, holes dug in the ground, covered with vegetation, with stakes placed inside. As he got older, Bundy enjoyed pulpy detective fiction stories that were filled with gore and depictions of rape and murder. It is also said that he would masturbate in closets during junior high school. I mean, I guess who hasn't? What boy hasn't done that, I suppose? That's true. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that happens a lot in a junior high. I mean, hormones are rampaging like crazy. Right. And then up until that point, I was like, uh, well... Me, you know, I love scaring I mean, people. Well, I, I you literally like scaring got people. paid to scare and, people. And full disclosure, I made a tiger trap once at a park. Amazing. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it was at Sunset Park. I dug a hole and put sharp sticks in it and hoped somebody would step on it. That is so mean. Yep. So there we go. I'm honestly more impressed. You're welcome. <laughs> so You're two welcome. of you make a whole Bundy. Yeah. Yeah. The two of us make a whole Bundy. By our powers combined, Boom, we are yeah. Ted Bundy. <laughs> is less impressive than Captain Planet and a little bit more disturbing. What kind of rings, like, what kind of power rings do you have to have? They're made of crowbar. Oh, okay. They're made, of <laughs> They're made out of crowbar. And fear. When you put your knuckles together, it's just one complete crowbar. <laughs> oh, I love that. Can we get BFF rings, yes, please? Yes, let's do that. They make, make a crowbar. <laughs> Ted grew up to be an attractive teenager who seemingly got along well with his peers, despite being a loner, and did well in school. He only had one date in high school, but explained that, quote, It wasn't like I disliked women, or was afraid of them. It was just that I didn't seem to have an inkling as to what to do about them. It was during his time at Woodrow Wilson High School that Bundy said he began breaking into cars and homes, becoming a petty thief in order to pay for skis and ski passes. Downhill skiing was the only sport he was good at, but unfortunately, it was expensive. 
selling off stolen goods, along with his odd jobs of delivering newspapers and cutting lawns, helped pay for Ted's hobby. Even though his record was expunged at 18, Bundy was arrested twice during this time under suspicion of burglary and auto theft. Bundy would later attend the University of Puget Sound after graduating high school, but only stayed there for a year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. At this time, Bundy became romantically involved with a classmate. Diane Edwards was a beautiful and brilliant woman with dark hair who would make a lasting impact on Bundy. In his own words, quote, She's beautifully dressed, beautiful girl, very personable, nice car, great parents. So for a first-time girlfriend, you know, it was really not so bad. Ted seemed to want to move heaven and earth in order to impress Diane, who he often thought of as out of his league. He became involved in politics and applied to law schools in an attempt to impress her and her affluent parents. Quote, she inspired me to look at myself and became something more. Bundy is quoted as recalling in the now famous Bundy tapes. Though it would seem that Diane held a differing opinion of her, her then boyfriend, in an interview with a psychologist who was profiling Bundy after his arrest, she would describe him as a people pleaser who wouldn't stand up for himself. She told Dr. Carlisle, quote, That was my main criticism of him after the year and a half of our relationship. He wasn't strong. He wasn't real masculine. If I got mad at him because he did something, he sort of felt apologetic about it. He wouldn't stand up for himself. Bundy failed to get into law school, and frustrated by his perceived lack of ambition and immaturity, the relationship between Bundy and Edwards quickly began to, fell, to fall apart. By the summer of 1968, Diane broke the relationship off. Little did she know the catastrophic impact that the breakup would have, not only on Bundy, but for every woman after who crossed his path, especially those who bore a resemblance to Diane. Quote, she stopped writing to me, and I started to get fearful of what she was up to. I had this overwhelming fear of rejection that stemmed not just from her, but everything. In there, somewhere, was a desire to have some sort of revenge on Diane. Jesus. Yep. Like, taking breakups to a whole new level, yeah. for damn sure. Like, oh, okay, well, any girl that looks like you from here on out, I'm gonna take it out on them, yeah, too. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, yep. That oh. is That is revenge game hardcore. Also, at the same time, like, don't blame her. <laughs> Damn, like, yeah. it's all your fault that this is happening to these women. <laughs> well, when you're a narcissist, that's kind of how you you, know, you damage their ego, and it, yeah. it can oh, go yeah. it can go south real fast. I'm perfect. It's never my fault. Uh huh. <laughs> yes, it is your fault, Ted. No, nope. it is. No, nope. no. Nope. But Ted, you are literally. Nope. 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 Okay. Sorry, nope. Ted. Okay, Ted. You should be. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm amazing. Yeah, we know. As Ted. he slides the crowbar back I into his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Devastated by Edward's ultimate rejection, Bundy would travel to Colorado, then further east to visit relatives in Arkansas, and even enrolling at Temple University in Philadelphia for one semester. It was during this time that it's theorized that he also visited the Office of Birth Records in his original home of Burlington and discovered the nature of his true parentage. Ted Bundy was never the same after that. He would harbor a grudge against his mother for concealing the truth about his birth father from him 
instead of leaving him to discover it on his own. This, coupled with a need to prove something to a woman who summarily rejected him, seemed to spark an inferno inside Bundy that could not be quelled. He returned to Washington in 1969 and began dating Elizabeth Kendall, a divorcee from Ogden, Utah. Focused and driven, he re-enrolled at the University of Washington as a psychology major. He quickly became an honor student and in 1971 began working at Seattle's Suicide Crisis Hotline Center, where he would meet former police officer and aspiring crime author Ann Rule. Rule saw nothing odd about Bundy at this time, describing him as, quote, kind, solicitous, and empathetic. Rule even spoke of an anecdote later recalled in her book and one of the definitive biographies of Ted Bundy, The Stranger Beside Me, that Ted would often walk her to her car at night when they worked late at the center to make sure that she was safe because there were, quote, a lot of weirdos out there. That's eerie. That's just eerie. Right? I am the weirdos. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. There's a lot of weirdos out there, including me. Gotta Goodbye. go. <laughs> this conversation didn't happen. You don't remember me. You've never met me before in your life. Okay. 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 Goodbye. Sweet. Goodbye. And he's just like, okay, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow at work, Ted. See, see you Monday, Ted. Such the jokester. Oh, Gets you. in her car, drives yeah, home. Such a kidder. <laughs> <laughs> that Ted is quite the card. Also, like, it's worth noting that Anne Rule didn't meet his appearance. Like, no. W- what am I trying to say? M.O. She, for she didn't appearance. fit his victim profile. Yeah. Victim profile. Thank um, you. And she was a lot older than him. Like, he was 20, I believe he was 23 or 24 at the time mm-hmm. when he started working at the crisis center. And she was... Like almost forty, right? So and she and she had kids already, and like she just didn't meet his victim profile, right? And so she's probably thinking, "Oh, what a sweet young man!" Yeah, she like she said she even looked at him as like a younger brother because her own brother had committed suicide when he was twenty one, hence where she was working. So she was working at the suicide center to try and help people, obviously. So and then she kind of just thought of Ted as like almost like younger brother sort of sort of thing. That's unfortunate. He would graduate from Washington University in 1972 and join Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. He would also serve as an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party, after Evans' re-election. In early 1973, despite receiving mediocre scores on the LSAT, Bundy was accepted into both the law schools of the University of Puget Sound and the University of Utah. This acceptance seemed to hinge heavily on recommendation letters from Davis, Evans, and several University of Washington professors. Despite all this, Bundy had made it a mission to reconnect with Diane Edwards. During a visit to California in 1973, he met with and rekindled his relationship with Edwards, who seemed impressed by his ambition and his transformation into a serious career-driven professional man who was at the beginning of a promising legal and political career. He continued to date Kendall, and neither woman knew of the other's existence. Edwards and Bundy even seriously discussed marriage several times, and Bundy introduced Edwards to Ross Davis as his fiancé. Ooh, you slimeball. You sly, Ted Bundy, you sly. <laughs> Look at you. You sly boots. <laughs> sly boots the house down. For your nerves. For your nerves. <laughs> Bundy, for your nerves. Oh, it do take nerve. It do take nerve. Oh, it takes... Oh, my... Mm, now I'm mad. <laughs> but ultimately, it had never been a mission to reignite a long-lost romance. It was, in fact, all a carefully constructed scheme, 
Bundy was leading her on so that he could dump her harshly just as she had dumped him years before. In January 1974, Bundy abruptly broke off all contact with Edwards, her letters and calls going unanswered. Finally, after reaching him by phone a month later, Edwards demanded an explanation as to why he had ended their relationship without so much as a word, to which Bundy coolly responded, quote, Diane, I have no idea what you mean, and hung up. Bundy would later say, quote, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. Bundy had already begun skipping his classes at law school. By April, he would drop out entirely, but by then, young women had already started to go missing in the Pacific Northwest. Now, is it bad? Is it really, really bad that I just kind of want to stand up and cheer? <laughs> Diane, I have no idea what you mean. Click. Click. Like, and I was like, woo! <laughs> Collapse. That was that claps, claps. <laughs> I mean, she, it that sounded like she was a bit of a bitch. Savage. <laughs> You're not even a man, Ted. You're not even a man. He was like, <laughs> You're not damn. masculine, like, Ted. That's like a serious, like, long way around at, like, revenge. It's like, I'm going to get you to fall in love with me, and then I'm going to devastate you. It's like, God Just damn, Ted. I wanted to prove to myself I could do it. Like, is it bad? Again, that I'm just so now, on his side here. I was, yeah, there were several points, which was a little disturbing to me. I've been living in this man's head far longer than I care to admit. Research for this show is wonderfully good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there were times that I found myself rooting for him and I was like, why? <laughs> yeah. This was one of them. This was one of those times that I was like, yep, yep, you're a bitch. Yep. I would have done the same thing. Even what does here, that say about me? <laughs> in my own head, not Ted Bundy's head which is a weird sentence to say. <laughs> I'm still just like, I'm 100% on your side, buddy. Like, God damn. Yeah, you had I feel me, like... Yeah, you had me up into a point, and then you lost me. <laughs> all he had to do was put on some shades and start walking in slow motion, like cool guys don't look at explosions. <laughs> damn, that was brutal. Ice cold. All things considered, she got off lucky. Yeah, yeah that's oh, very she did. true. That's she did, very, very much so. Wonder if he ever tried to look her up. Like, well, now that I'm, you know, experienced. He did apparently call her at one point when mm -hmm. he was in Utah, and uh, he called her parents' home in California, and her sister or somebody answered, and it was like like early in the morning. It was like midnight or something, and she said, "Oh no, she's not here, and she's married now and stuff." So he did try at one point uh, to call most her. Most people again. would call that the middle of the night. Yeah, <laughs> most people. Most people would. Most people. But that was the same night, I guess, he tried to call Anne Rule as well. Like, he tried to call her at, like, midnight. And this was, like, right in between um, a couple disappearances. So he was yeah. obviously spiraling. Annie, and hey, He tried steady. to reach, yeah, he tried to reach out to some, maybe, like, hoping that a familiar voice maybe would keep him from doing what he was, but it obviously didn't work, so. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he was, I mean, maybe Anne would be the familiar voice that would calm him down, but... I feel like the Diane one, like if he had gotten a hold of her, he probably would have just. Well, that and the married. fact that she was married by that point. Yeah. Already. And she'd married somebody else. I think that would have just spurned like just just started off the whole thing all over again. Oh, yeah. Would have just made him angry. Or yeah. Poked the bear a little bit more. Meanwhile, she'd be like, you dumped me, oh sir. Like yeah. you could have had me. Oh, my God. Poked the teddy bear. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
And with that, moving on. <laughs> Vivian's going to be in the long game to kill both I'm of in us. A, yeah, I might be. I might be. <laughs> Good thing I bring my own water. You don't know. You don't know. <laughs> so I'm going to preface this following section with another content warning because Ooh. it does get really brutal. There are a lot of descriptions of crime scenes. There's a lot of unpleasant descriptions and a lot of violence towards women. So please be advised listening to this section. Yes. And we here at this spooky show love women. We are women. Yeah. So, <laughs> so please it's, don't send us letters. This is rough. <laughs> this is rough, people. So buckle yeah. up. It's going to be fun. You know, being women that love women, you just got a completely different listener audience. Yeah, we might have. I women. mean, hi. Expanding. I'm cool with it. I'm hi. 100% I'm not saying cool it's a bad it. thing. I'm just saying you're not, you just boosted your number. You just doubled our audience. Look yeah. at that. Yay. Look at us go. Look me up. <laughs> <laughs> there is no consensus on when or where Bundy began killing women. He confessed varying stories to different people, all reflecting differing timelines and details. He seemed to be unwilling to share details of his early crimes, while at the same time confessing graphic and gory details of later crimes right up until his date of execution. He told one source that he had kidnapped a woman in 1969 in Ocean City, Maryland, but did not kill her. He claimed to them not to have started killing until he was back in Seattle in 1971. He then would claim to a psychologist that his first killings were in Atlantic City in 1969. He had said he killed two women there while visiting family in Philadelphia. While the details of the truth likely followed Bundy to his grave, there is no mistake who was his first victim. In January of 1974, around the same time that he ended his relationship with Edwards, he attacked 18-year-old Karen Sparks, a dancer and student at the University of Washington. He broke into her basement apartment and bludgeoned her with a metal rod from her bed frame while she slept. After she was beaten and unconscious, he sexually assaulted her with the same metal bar. The brutality of the assault caused massive internal injuries, including piercing her bladder and basically splitting it open and put Sparks into a coma for 10 days. She would survive, but suffered massive permanent and physical damage and mental impairment from the attack for the rest of her life. Only a month later, the need to brutalize a woman came over Bundy again. This time he broke into the apartment of another University of Washington student, Linda Ann Healy. She was an undergraduate student who had a job on the radio providing a morning weather report for skiers. Bundy would beat her unconscious and dress her in a pair of blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots before carrying her body away. Linda Ann Healy was never seen again. Years later, her skull would be found at one of Bundy's preferred body dumping sites. He would confess to strangling her to death. Bundy had found his hunting ground and would continue to target and stalk female students in the area. Young women, especially young, pretty college students, with long hair parted down the middle, were disappearing at the rate of about one per month. On March 12, 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson left her dorm at Evergreen State College in Olympia to attend a jazz concert on campus, but never arrived. On April 17th, Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared while returning to her dorm after an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College, about 110 miles east to southeast of Seattle. The authorities were stumped. These women seemed to have simply vanished into thin air. The only witnesses so far were two female students at Central Washington State who came forward to report a strange encounter with a man. One reported this encounter three nights prior to Rancourt's disappearance, and the other reported a similar encounter the very same night that Susan Rancourt went missing. The similarities in their accounts were striking. 
They said they had been both approached by a man with his arm in a sling who was asking for help carrying a load of books to his beige or tan Volkswagen Beetle. Fortunately for both women, they either sent something amiss or simply declined his request. Others were not so lucky. On May 6th, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dorm at Oregon State University, south of Portland, to meet some friends for coffee. Parks never arrived. Bundy later confessed to raping and killing Parks at Taylor Mountain, some 25 miles southeast of Seattle. On June 1st, 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball vanished after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien, near the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. She was last seen in the parking lot of the bar, talking to a man with brown hair and his arm in a sling. Her skull was later discovered at Taylor Mountain. Just real quick. <laughs> the approaching a man, or a, a man with an arm in a sling approaching them and saying, I need some help, and them just, like, saying no. Yeah, like, <laughs> being an asshole saves your life sometimes, p- kids. You heard it here first. Yeah, apparently, be an asshole. It saves your life. That's why I never help anybody, ever. <laughs> That's why I never help people on crutches or their arms and slings. I say, fuck you, and then I throw my coffee in their face, and then I leave. <laughs> you run away cackling. <laughs> and then I trip them to make sure that they're... <laughs> and then I kick the crutch out from under them to make sure they're really hurt. <laughs> and then you're really fucked up. When they don't fall, they just hang there. <laughs> There and that's when you run and then i ran and i ran <laughs> i for real would have totally been a murder victim oh he would have gotten me 100 percent. Oh, yes because i yeah. like i'm i don't suspect people no very out like i try to believe the best in people so I'd be like all right you're hurt i'll help you right exactly. and then i get hit in the head with a crowbar well, and then you don't think with somebody being injured or obviously you don't know that's a fake injury right you just exactly. assume that like hey this person's hurt they're not going to attack me, obviously, because they can't, because his arms are like, what's he going to do? You know, so even if your alarm went up a little bit, you're like, well, his arm's broken. What's he going to do? Like, he can't, you know. Oh, yeah. I, I'd have fallen for it in a heartbeat. Oh, 100%. Like, looking over and seeing him, like, struggle with books, and he's got his arm in a sling, and oh, no. I'd be like, honey. Yeah. <laughs> let me help you. <laughs> yeah, he would have gotten me for sure. For oh. sure. Definitely. <laughs> no, something was amiss. No, no, you guys are just bitches. <laughs> Maybe because it was okay, still like it your life. <laughs> early on in his like kidnapping and stuff. Maybe who was still trying to figure out like how to not use his arm. So they were like, his arms oh. in a sling. But like, he looks like he's lifting those books fine. I'm just gonna go. I'm oh, just gonna okay. leave. You know what? Probably because yeah, he's like. Oh, my arm is hurt. Meanwhile, and they're like, like, "You're bending it just fine right now." My hey, arm's broken. Then he waves to someone like, "Oh, and hi, goes, Lindsay!" And he goes, "Shit!" <laughs> hey, Ted. Hi. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Something's amiss. I'm not helping you. I'm not helping you. <laughs> fuck you, buddy. You look like you're doing fine. <laughs> In the early hours of June 11th, 18-year-old Georgianne Hawkins vanished while walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dorm and her sorority house. After her disappearance was made public, witnesses came forward claiming to have seen a man near the same alley on crutches with his leg in a cast, struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman reported that the man had asked her to help him carry the case to his waiting car, a tan Volkswagen Beetle. Bundy would later confess to King County Sheriff's Office detective Robert Keppel that he struck Hawkins with a crowbar when she got into the car. He handcuffed Hawkins and placed her in the passenger side of its Volkswagen before driving off. He recalled that she regained consciousness sometime on the drive. He said she started talking quite lucidly and thought she had a Spanish test the next day and that Bundy had taken her to tutor him for the test. He said, quote, it was an odd thing to say and that, quote, it was kind of funny the things people will say in these circumstances. 
Perhaps it was a concussion from the blow to the head that had confused Hawkins, but that was nothing compared to how Bundy described her ultimate fate to Keppel. Quote, I parked, took the handcuffs off of her, and took her out of the car. The long and the short of it was, I knocked her again unconscious and strangled her, and drug her into the small grove of trees that was there. Unquote. It was after Hawkins was dead that Bundy would commit one final injustice to her remains. Can you hear that? I just said that the Hawkins girl's head was severed and taken up the road about 25 to 50 yards and buried in a location about 10 yards west of the road on a rocky hillside. But this was the pattern that Bundy was following, his formula, his ritual, and he would follow it with each of his victims, bludgeoning them unconscious before binding, raping, and killing them, often by strangulation, and dumping their bodies in remote spots that he had chosen in the woods. He would often return to the dump sites and have sex with their decaying corpses, something he didn't admit until later, until days before his execution. In some instances, like with George Ann Hawkins, he would decapitate his victims and keep their skulls in his apartment, sleeping mere feet from his trophies and mementos of death and conquest. Quote, the ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of the life, then the physical possession of the remains, Bundy said. Ironically, at this time, Bundy was working in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Pre- Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, where in an even crueler, stranger-than-fiction twist, he wrote a pamphlet for women about rape prevention. Later, he would also work at the Department of Emergency Services, which was a government agency who had a hand in searching for the missing women. Perhaps a calculated move by the shrewd Bundy, who wished to keep apprised of what the authorities knew and what they had discovered about the victims or a potential assailant. It was while working here that he would meet Carol Ann Boone, a twice-divorced mother of two, whom he would date off and on for many years, and who six years later would play an important role in the final stage of his life. Side note again. Like, there's been a lot of talk about how maybe Bundy's not as intelligent as everybody thinks he is, but that's really, really good. That was intentionally smart. That was intentional, because he knew, and he even said that later, that he's like, I knew that they're all tied up with the police and these people who were looking. So that was his way of keeping his finger on the pulse of what they knew and who they were looking for. And right. And nobody's going to expect somebody that's helping to be the murderer. Exactly. At this point. (laughs) At this point. Yeah, exactly. Except nowadays we're going to be like, huh, that guy knows an awful lot about rape prevention. I'm (laughs) suspicious of you immediately. (laughs) He must, uh, he must also know how to catch people. Jacques. Jacques. Authorities from both the King County and Seattle Police Departments became increasingly concerned at the rash of disappearances. No significant physical evidence was ever found at any of the scenes. Three detectives from the Homicide Division of the Seattle Police Department even combed the alley where George Ann Hawkins went missing on their hands and knees and found nothing. The missing women also seemed to have little in common other than the fact that they were young, white college students with their hair parted down the middle. Fear had spread amongst the population of young college-age women and saw a distinct drop in young women hitchhiking at the time. Pressure mounted on the police to do something, but there was still little to none in the ways of physical evidence. They seemed to be an impasse. What little information was available was withheld from reporters for fear of compromising an already fragile investigation. Some other similarities were noted, though, with the growing number of victims. The disappearances all occurred at night, around the time of the midterms or final exams. 
The places that the women disappeared from were either usually around ongoing construction work, all the victims were last seen wearing either blue jeans or slacks, and at many of the crime scenes, a man had been seen wearing a leg cast or an arm sling and driving a tan or brown or bronze Volkswagen Beetle. The disappearances would hit a zenith in July of 1974, when two young women were abducted within hours of each other in broad daylight from Lake Sammamish Park in Issaquah, about 20 miles east of Seattle. Five women described being approached by an attractive man in a white tennis outfit who spoke in either a slight Canadian or British accent. He called himself Ted and asked for help unloading a sailboat from his tan or bronze-colored Volkswagen Beetle. Four of the women refused to help, claiming they were too busy. The fifth accompanied him to help, but fled upon seeing that there was no sailboat at the car. He then approached Janice Ann Ott, a 23-year-old caseworker from the King County Juvenile Court. According to three witnesses, she seemed to reluctantly accompany him. I want to believe that when he spoke in a British accent, it was Theodore. Theodore, my darling. It was a slight British accent, (laughs) not full-on, like, upper-class Westchester. (laughs) (laughs) Oi. It wasn't a Cockney accent either. It wasn't like, oi, (laughs) oi, the missus, can you help me with me boat? Oh, there's no sailboat there. (laughs) Running away from your I'm just imagining, like, now... Even nowadays, when people are like, oh, British accents, people automatically go Cockney. So, like, in the 70s, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it was, like, super bad. Yeah. I, they'd, which I don't know what it sounds like. They were like. Right. <laughs> they were like, no. Well, even, I guess, the fifth one, she said, because I, I read something or heard something. I don't know. I've been reading so many and hearing so many things that I'm getting all my wires crossed. But she had said that she went to the car with him and then didn't see the boat and then he went oh well the boat's at my parents house which is up the road can you do you want to come with me to go get it and she was like no it's okay i'm gonna go back to my campsite because this is weird now and i feel weird and that's probably where i'd nope out as well yeah like, she noped oh, out there's no sailboat there but uh-huh. then he said i guess like janice ott didn't really want to go help him because what from witnesses were saying like she kind of like sighed reluctantly and like went to help like because he was kind of mm-hmm. like not pushy but almost like insistent about it like Come on, come on, come help. And she was just like, oh, fine. Don't be a bitch. Yeah. Don't, Don't be, be a bitch. You're a special kind of bitch, Marianne. <laughs> you are a special kind of bitch, Janice Ott. So she kind of was like, finally relented and was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll go help you. It'll probably take like five seconds. And If I help you, will you fuck off? Yeah. Okay. And then, Great. Well, we, we know how that ended. Yeah. But can we just address the fact that he went by his own name? Like, what was I just talking about? Him being all smart and shit. You know what? I take it all back. Well, I don't think he wasn't smart. I think that was just, that's just ego. That was just, I'm not going to get caught, so it doesn't matter if I use my own name. That's 100% the narcissist coming out. And maybe partially wanting, like, connected with the narcissism, like, them knowing it's him. Yeah. Not some random guy that they don't know the name of. No, it was head well the thing is yeah he wasn't shy about giving aliases because he does later when he's you know in on the on his escape mm-hmm. he does give aliases later several times roll fizzle beef but <laughs> blast hard cheese <laughs> <laughs> but but the fact that he gave his actual name to many witnesses that he was trying to get to come back to the car like that's 100 percent a desperate hunter on on the hunt he was not considering mm-hmm. anything like that he was just like i'm gonna catch me somebody today like i'm gonna get me a pet girl uh no <laughs> not so much that but not yeah. so much a pet girl <laughs> well and I'm, I'm sure that we will get to it 
you know, in the coming bits of our mm-hmm. podcast, but like even when people did know like what he looked like and mm-hmm. what he was doing, people like denied it because yeah. Anne Rule even said like, you know, it sounded a lot like Ted, yeah. but I was like, nah, it could never be Ted. Well, and I then said it jokingly, like, <laughs> you know, this sounds like. Well, you and guys. he, I guess he used to get a lot of ribbing too when he worked at the Department of Emergency Services because the sketch was going around at the time, mm-hmm. the composite sketch, and they're like, hey, this looks a lot like you, ha ha ha, and it was guys. like, <laughs> and it was like a running joke, and then um, his girlfriend at the time, Liz Kendall, said that you know her friend kept going, well, that sounds an awful lot like Ted. It sounds an awful lot like Ted, and she was like. So she called and they were like, well, she's like, is it a tan, you know, beetle? And they were like, no, it was bronze. So that was like all it took to kind of like, she was like, oh, okay, well, it's the wrong car. No, it was taupe. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, was it tan? No, it, it was, was puce. It was puce. It, it was milk toast. So that was like what it took. She was like, oh, okay, well, it's the wrong color. It's not him. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's like all these other boxes are checked, but the car is bronze. So it's not So it's Ted. not him at all. Yeah. No. No. So back to the same day, because this happened this happened twice in the same day. Mm-hmm. About four hours later, 19-year-old Denise Marie Nasland, who was studying to become a computer programmer, stepped away from a picnic to use a restroom at the park and never returned. Bundy claimed that Ott had still been alive when he returned with Nasland, and one was forced to watch as he killed the other. But he would later deny this account on the eve of his execution. Since the abductions had occurred in such a busy public park, there had been enough witnesses this time to pin down a description of the suspect and his vehicle. A composite sketch was made and distributed to regional newspapers and shown on local television stations. Flyers were posted around about the suspect calling himself Ted throughout the Seattle area. Elizabeth Kendall, Anne Rule, a DES employee, and a University of Washington professor all recognized the sketch and the profile and reported Bundy as a potential suspect. Detectives, however, who were fielding up to 200 leads a day, thought it was unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no prior criminal record could be the assailant, and in perhaps the blunder of the century, dismissed Bundy as a potential suspect. This error in judgment would cost eight more women their lives. On September 6th, grouse hunters would discover the skeletal remains of Naslin and Ott near a service road in Issaquah, a mere two miles away from the park that they had been taken from. An extra femur and several vertebrae at the site were later identified by Bundy as belonging to George Ann Hawkins. Six months later, forestry students from the Green River Community College would discover human remains, mostly skulls and mandibles of victims Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball on Taylor Mountain. Donna Manson's remains were never recovered. In August of 1974, Bundy received a second acceptance from the University of Utah Law School and moved to Salt Lake City. His girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall, remained in Seattle, and while he kept in touch and called her often, he dated, quote, at least a dozen other women. It was around this time, much to Bundy's dismay, that he would find his classes difficult and incomprehensible. It was a great source of disappointment to him. Consequently, or perhaps not, around this time, a new string of disappearances and homicides would begin. This included two murders that remained unknown until Bundy confessed to them just prior to his execution. On September 2nd, he raped and strangled a hiker in Idaho who remains unidentified to this day. The story goes that he either disposed of the body in the river or he returned the next day to photograph and then dismember the corpse. On October 2nd, he kidnapped and murdered 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox in a suburb of Salt Lake City. Her remains were never found. 
16 days later, on October 18th, 17-year-old Melissa Ann Smith, the daughter of police chief of Midvale, another suburb of Salt Lake City, was planning on going to a slumber party. Her plans were interrupted by a tearful phone call from a friend who needed comforting about a failing romance. The slumber party could wait, and she went to comfort her friend at her place of work, a pizza parlor. Melissa would disappear from the parking lot after leaving the pizza parlor and never make it to that slumber party. Her nude body was found just over a week later. A post-mortem examination would reveal that she had been beaten severely, the left side and back of her skull caved in by a blunt object. She had been raped and sodomized and then strangled with nylon stockings so tightly that the hyoid bone in her throat was fractured. It was also concluded that she may have remained alive for up to seven days after her disappearance. A nearly identical fate would befall 17-year-old Laura Ann Aim on October 31st. She disappeared after leaving a cafe in Lehigh after midnight. Her nude body was discovered by hikers, disposed of in a canyon on Thanksgiving Day. A postmortem examination of Aim's body would reveal markedly similar injuries to those inflicted on Melissa Smith. Her skull fractured and bashed in in the same places in a rage-filled attack. She had been sexually assaulted also and strangled with a pair of stockings. The necklace she wore tangled up inexorably with the ligature that ended her life. In the late afternoon on November 8th, Bundy would approach then 18-year-old Carol Durant at the Fashion Place Mall in, U- in Murray, Utah, which was less than a mile from the Midvale Pizza Restaurant where Melissa Smith had been last seen. He identified himself as Officer Roseland of the Murray Police Department and told Durant that he had, someone had attempted to break into her vehicle. She followed him to her car but saw no signs of a break-in. It was then that he told her that the suspect was in, quote, custody at the substation in the mall. He then took her behind a laundromat and attempted to get inside, but the door was locked. Her suspicion rising, Durant asked Bundy to produce some identification, which he did, in the form of a realistic-looking phony badge. This seemed to assuage her concerns for the time being, and she agreed to accompany Bundy in his car back to the precinct where he told her the suspect had been transported. On the drive, Durant pointed out that Bundy was not on the road that led to the station. It was then that he pulled over to the shoulder of the road and attempted to restrain her with handcuffs. In the struggle, he accidentally placed both cuffs on the same wrist, so Durant was able to open the car door and escape. Carol Durant was the first woman since Karen Sparks to encounter Bundy and survive. The frustration that overcame Bundy from his intended target escaping would be taken out in full force later that same day on 17-year-old Deborah Jean Kent, a student at Viewmont High School in Bountiful, Utah, about 20 miles north of Murray. Kent disappeared after leaving a theater rehearsal to pick up her brothers from a roller skating rink. She never made it to her car. The drama teacher and student said that a stranger asked each of them to come out to the parking lot to identify a car. Another student saw the same man pacing at the rear of the auditorium, and the drama teacher saw him again shortly before the play wrapped. Outside the auditorium, police found a key that unlocked the handcuffs around Carol Durant's wrist. Bundy claimed to a sheriff's office detective later that he left Deborah Jean Kent's body in a grave, but her remains have never been found. Just a quick little thing for... I don't get serious very often. Yeah. I know. And it, this is going to be really weird. And it's going to be <laughs> the scariest thing we've ever heard on this show. I know. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. But now I'm going to get serious just for a moment. This doesn't just go for women. It's anybody out there who's listening. Um, you, if you ever you're in a position where a police officer is trying to convince you that they are a police officer and you feel uncomfortable in any way, you're 100% okay to tell them no. 
to everything. Yes. Don't feel like you have to do something just because a so-called police officer tells you to. Call the police yourself and say, I just want to get dispatch on the phone to make sure it's it's actually you. Not a single actual police officer is going to fault you for that. No. No. Especially if you're, like you said, if you're a female and you're alone and they pull you over, you know, don't pull over somewhere dark. Make sure you're always pulling over into a well-lit parking lot. And then it is perfectly okay to ask for their badge number and get dispatch on the phone to find out if they're really a police officer. Exactly. And serious moment over. Whoa, guys, I I blacked out there for a second. (laughs) What what did I miss? (laughs) You said some weird stuff. (laughs) Cover your heart! Cover your heart! (laughs) And now, back to our tale. News of another epidemic of young women going missing had not escaped the notice of Elizabeth Kendall back in Washington. Despite her initial distress and denial of her longtime boyfriend being the potential Ted suspect in the Washington and Oregon disappearances and murders, the shadows of suspicion had not entirely left her mind. She contacted King County detectives a second time. By then, Bundy had risen up through the list of potential suspects considerably, but eyewitnesses who had been at the Lake Sammamish Park on the day of the double kidnapping and murder of Denise Nasland and Janice Ott failed to identify Bundy in a photo lineup. And there was little in the way of other evidence outside of eyewitnesses who had seen the charming and sharply dressed man who approached young women for assistance that day. Elizabeth Kendall was interviewed in detail regarding her concerns, but the case seemed at a stalemate otherwise. In December, Kendall, unsatisfied by the lack of movement with the case in King County, contacted Salt Lake City Police and repeated her suspicions. Bundy's name was added to a list of suspects, but again, with little to no forensic evidence to back up such accusations, that was where it seemed to stop. Meanwhile, Bundy returned to Seattle after completing his finals. She never revealed to him that she called the cops on him on three separate occasions, nor did she discuss her suspicions with him. Instead, she agreed to visit him in Salt Lake City in August of that year. The year had turned again. 1975 would begin with Bundy continuing to keep up the facade of a normal, brilliant, and driven law student while his hunting continued in earnest. He would shift his hunting grounds eastward to Colorado. On January 12th, registered nurse 23-year-old Karen Eileen Campbell would vanish from a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room at the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village, about 400 miles southeast of Salt Lake City. Bundy had been a skiing enthusiast since his college days, and no doubt easily blended into the small ski towns of Colorado. A handsome, charming man in a ski resort was hardly a red flag. Campbell's nude body was found a month later next to a dirt road near the resort. Her skull had been bashed in by an object that left distinct linear groove depressions on the skin and bone. Her body had also had deep cuts from a sharp weapon. On March 15th, Julie Cunningham, a 26-year-old ski instructor from Vail, Colorado, disappeared 100 miles northeast of Snowmass. She had been walking from her apartment to join a friend for a dinner date when she was approached by a man on crutches who asked her to help him carry his ski boots to his car. Being a ski instructor, it was likely not an uncommon sight to see someone on crutches who had taken a spill on the slopes and was in need of assistance. It was just her misfortune that the man asking for assistance was Ted Bundy. When they got back to the car, Bundy clubbed Cunningham and handcuffed her. He placed her in his car and drove to an area near Rifle, Colorado, about 90 miles west of Vail. It was here that he assaulted and strangled Cunningham and left her body. Weeks later, he would make a six-hour drive back to the site to revisit the remains. 
It is unknown what Bundy did with her body, but Cunningham's remains were never found. The killing didn't abate or cease. Unsatisfied, Bundy would seek out another victim on April 6th near Grand Junction, close to the Colorado-Utah border. 25-year-old Denise Lynn Oliverson would disappear on a bike ride while on her way to her parents' house. Later, her bike and sandals would be found discarded in a viaduct under a railroad bridge. It was only about a month later that Bundy would seize his youngest victim to date. On May 6th, he would lure 12-year-old Lynette Don Culver from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho. He took the young girl back to his hotel room, where he would drown her in the bathtub and sexually assault her. He would discard her remains in the Snake River, north of Pocatello. This is the first time he drowned someone, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, this is the first uh, drowning. It's also, like, he also said he would take victims back to his homes and safe houses and hotel rooms, so that wasn't unusual. Mm -hmm. But the drowning was was new. That was That was something that was definitely different from his typical mo wonder if it had something to do with her being so young like well i can't strangle her <laughs> come on i'm not a monster maybe but maybe <laughs> i was like or it was just maybe he was just trying out new tools in the toolkit i guess like you know um just to try out new things mm. or like he had left things in his car and maybe didn't want a chance going yeah, back out going and back out and being seen yeah yeah or just didn't want to go up those stairs or down those stairs <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how many stairs there were at the hotel, I guess. True. (laughs) In the middle of May, after Lynette Culver's murder, three of Bundy's DES co-workers from back in Washington, including Carol Ann Boone, would visit and stay for a week in his apartment. In June, he would visit Seattle again to see Kendall. She again made no mention of her alerts about him to the authorities, and they discussed getting married the following December. Marriage plans and domesticity would not temper Bundy's appetites. He continued seeing other women, unbeknownst to Kendall, including another law student known in most accounts as Kim Andrews. Such plans also failed to keep Bundy from the hunt. On June 28th, Susan Curtis vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University. Curtis was only 15 years old and had been attending the Bountiful Orchard Youth Conference on campus. He lured her away and assaulted and murdered her the confession of her murder being Bundy's last, recorded moments before he stepped into the execution chamber. He said he buried her near a highway, but neither hers, nor Culver, nor Oliverson's remains would ever be recovered. Despite being a prolific serial killer and deviant, Bundy seemed to make time for special events and friends in his life at this time, largely likely to keep up appearances of being a normal man. According to friends in his close social circles in Utah at the time of the killings, Ted would often host parties at his apartment where he loved to entertain and was a fantastic cook. He dated quite frequently and, by all accounts, seemed so very normal. In late August or early September of 1975, Bundy would also make time for religion. He was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but largely ignored most church rules and doctrine and was not an active participant in services. This act, like most in Bundy's adult life, was about keeping up appearances. He would later be excommunicated from the church following his conviction in 1976 for kidnapping. I just want to have a Bundy burger. Says he was a good cook. (laughs) Bundy burger. I guess he had, also he had a bike tire or wheel in his apartment that was hanging from the ceiling by a meat hook that he used to hang knives on. That's, okay, go yeah. off, sis. Go Rose. off, sis. <laughs> um, but I do have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But was he the the Bundy Burger King? 
I left before I'll leave again. <laughs> no, no, but he was the head chef. Ha. <laughs> you get it because he cut off heads. Goodbye. Listen, guys, the seances we have to do to get Vivian back, they're very expensive. You need to stop. Yes, thank you. Worth it. <laughs> it cost a very lot. Worth it. <laughs> we'll write it off as a business expense. It's tax season. Technically, yes, it'll be fine. It's the new tax season. It's though. a new tax season. We'll not... that back for another year. Exactly. We'll just take it out of Quincy's pocket. It's fine. We still owe the Uber that brought him back. <laughs> we'll give him a Bundy burger. It'll be fine. Here, have a Bundy burger with some of Saucy Jackie's barbecue sauce. <laughs> that was too many things. See what I did? This is going to be the most disgusting fast food chain ever. Yeah. <laughs> no one would ever eat there. Yeah, that, and that's saying a lot compared, it would be compared to the competition. <laughs> what's wrong with a barbecue burger nothing no it's just bundy burger so it's probably got like you know human meat in there it's not, oh, okay. not, it's oh, not a dahmer burger <laughs> that's fair that's true it's not a it's not a dahmer burger but we'll get to that at a later yes, that'll date. be a whole other episode i can't wait to talk about dahmer <laughs> um, but yeah back to bundy in washington state the wheels of justice were grinding slowly but they had never fully stopped moving in an effort to make some sense of and efficiently sort through countless tips and leads they had received, the King County authorities compiled all the raw information into a database. The only computer system on offer that was up to such a task was the slow and antiquated King County payroll computer. All the leads on the name Ted, all the information about a tan or brown Volkswagen Beetle, all the information was fed in and cross-checked for familiarities or coincidences. Out of the thousands of names, 26 turned up on four separate lists as having all the factors in common. Bundy was among those names. Detectives also compiled their own list of their 100 best suspects, and Bundy was on that list too. His name was literally, quote, at the top of the pile of suspects when word came through of his arrest in Utah. So now they use the payroll computer. Yeah. Do you think there's someone that got a check with, like, his Ted name. Bundy's name on it. They're like, "Who's Ted? But whose paycheck is this? Oh my god, this is more than this I is make. more than I make. Get that asshole on the phone." <laughs> also, I love that they put together a list of their 100 best suspects. Like they're like their top 100. Top 100. <laughs> top 100 best suspects. Don't be mad about it. It's their burn book. Yeah. Don't be mad you didn't make the cut, boo boo. And since I have talked a lot, a lot. <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to Lauren now. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like the bulk of this, though. It was supposed <laughs> to be the crimes. That's, come on, we don't, we don't care. Yeah. <laughs> we don't begrudge you, but your yeah. throat probably does. Oh, your poor throat. <laughs> I talk a lot. People are here tired of my voice. <laughs> disagree. <laughs> All right. Hard disagree. So Bundy was arrested in Granger on August 16th, 1975, by a Utah Highway Patrol officer named Bob Hayward. Hayward said he had seen Bundy driving in a residential area shortly before dawn and that he had taken off at top speed upon seeing his patrol car. The first thing that stood out to Hayward was that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed in the back seat. During his search of Bundy's vehicle, Hayward found a ski mask, a homemade mask fashioned, see what I did there, out of <laughs> pantyhose, handcuffs, trash bags, rope, an ice pick, and of course, a crowbar. There were other items found as well, assumed to be common burglary tools. When questioned about the items found in his car, Bundy stated that the ski mask was meant, quote, for skiing. The handcuffs were found in a dumpster, and the rest of the items were simply regular household items. With Bundy's charm and the fact that he seemed to be a perfectly normal guy, surely no one would ever think twice about this incident, right? I mean, to be honest, 
an ice pick is not part of a burglar set. That's so. true. It's not like a lock pick. And... But also, it's not a regular household tool. Yeah, like, why are you carrying an in ice pick 70s? in your car? I mean, also... In your car? Weird. Yeah, weird in your car. Also, like, it does snow there. Yeah, yeah I guess. You don't use an ice pick on your car, though. Well, no. Yeah, you would use, like, but... a windshield scraper, but, like, yeah. Probably, but, like, maybe to get out of a weird... I don't even I can know. see where you're going. Like, Thank if, like you. ice... This is what happens when you spend your entire life in Nevada. Yeah. It's true. I was born and raised in Las Vegas. I have never seen snow. Do you know? Do you know how long it would take to you to get your windshield clear with an ice pick? No, you would be out there very long at all. Yeah, you'd you'd be out there. You'd either be out there a for six days or b five seconds when you break through the windshield. I was thinking I'll get more a new of car. like the snow condensing into ice and needing to pick out your tire. Yeah, like from behind your tire. Yeah. Do you Not also know. know how Go long that would take? <laughs> I didn't say it was a quick process. I just said I could see it. The item you're looking for here is salt. Yes, it's also, salt. why am I trying to stand up for the fact that he had an ice pick? Like, why am I like, no, 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 it's perfectly normal. <laughs> like, this cider is If you're caressing and holding your ice pick. Don't you judge my Don't ice pick. Don't you judge pick. my ice pick. How dare you? Your axe's name is Paul. My pickaxe name is... Did I say pickaxe? <laughs> my ice pick's name is Sharon. Sharon the ice fish. Sharon and Paul. Sharon and Paul. And I will not entertain these notions. <laughs> but anyways, Detective Jerry Thompson remembered that there was a very similar vehicle, as well as suspect description from the Durant kidnapping the previous year. And on top of that, Bundy's name, of course, matched the name given by Kendall in her phone call. This was enough to give them reason to take Bundy into custody, and search his apartment. Hold up, he used his real name with her as well? Yeah. Motherfucker. <laughs> okay. Real name with uh, with Kendall? Yeah. That's his girlfriend. Yeah, that's his girlfriend. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I got confused. I was thinking it was the one where he posed as a cop. Oh, yeah, no. Oh, he no, actually no. did give an alias for okay, that one. Okay, <laughs> yeah, for a minute there, I thought he posed as a cop as Ted like... Bundy the cop. Yeah, like, Ted Bundy the cop. <laughs> Ted Bundy, <laughs> Officer, Officer Bundy. Bundy. <laughs> no, that was uh, Officer Roseland. Yeah, he, he, he actually did give an alias for that one. I got confused. All right, continue. During the search of Bundy's apartment, police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark next to the Wildwood Inn and an ad for the Viewmont High School play where Deborah Kent had disappeared. While this was strange, it wasn't enough evidence to detain Bundy, so he was released. Years later, Bundy would confess that the police had missed the one piece of evidence that would have kept him behind bars a collection of Polaroid photographs he had taken of his victims. Upon his release, Bundy's first act was to destroy these photos, as this brush with the law had been just a little too close for comfort. Salt Lake City police still placed Bundy on 24-hour surveillance, certain that there was something off about this man, despite the lack of evidence. Detective Thompson had decided to fly out to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Kendall, she told them that before Bundy had moved to Utah, she had discovered items that she, quote, couldn't understand, both in her house and in Bundy's apartment. Among these items were a pair of crutches, no doubt used to bait his victims into believing he was a completely harmless man in need of some help, a bag of plaster of Paris, and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Even stranger and more damning was a sack of women's clothing more than likely belonging to his victims. When she attempted to confront Bundy, he became enraged, stating, If, if you, you tell, tell anyone, I'll, I'll break, break your, your fucking neck. neck. Accompanying the strange items was also his strange behavior. 
Kendall claimed that he became very upset if she ever talked about cutting her long hair short and that she would sometimes wake up to find him under the covers, examining her body with a flashlight. She also noted that Bundy would often borrow her car, another Volkswagen Beetle, quote, for protection, and he would keep a lug wrench in the trunk of her car. He apparently also had one taped under the seat that she found at one point. Yeah. It was taped under the driver's seat, and she was like, why would I need this taped under the seat? And he's like, well, there's like, you know, riots on campus and things like that, and it's for security. You never know, and blah, blah, blah. It's for bashing people's heads in. Like when a bitch just won't listen. (laughs) I mean, keeping one taped under the seat is definitely weird, but keeping one in the trunk is a perfect. Even when the trunk is like normal, that's like normally where you would keep. She does it a higher station tire. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, when she like, I guess reached under the seat at one point, there was like a a crowbar or a wrench like taped under the seat, and she. That's just where I had my skittles. Yeah. I found a lollipop under there once. (laughs) It was still good. So hard to hold it in. Sticky. (laughs) Moving. Oh no! No, share with the class. I want to know what you're giggling about. Examining her body with a flashlight under the covers. Like, yeah, that's not going to wake anybody. Oh, sorry, honey. Like I didn't know you were reading home. his book, but he's <laughs> under the covers like, wait a minute. What do you mean that's not going to wake somebody? It's not like the flashlight's like going, wow, look at her. Wow, that's some titties. <laughs> it's a flashlight. It's quiet. That's some titties. It's a talking <laughs> Vivian Noir, 2020. <laughs> that's that's some titties. <laughs> that is my campaign slogan. There I fully go. endorse this message. I what are you talking you? about? I, I would probably wake up if there was like a sudden light. I just the if, fact that if, like that's what he was doing. He was like under the covers. Under the covers. <laughs> well, and then he's, your body. But, what are but, you doing under there? I'm trying to find Waldo. <laughs> <laughs> it's for it's for science. For science. Well, and then the fact that she obviously had woken up at a point and caught him doing this and didn't say anything <laughs> or like what how did he explain himself and, yeah, out how did of that he explain one? out of this one like, like i I'm, said trying to find waldo i'm checking you out i'm checking you for skin cancer because i love you <laughs> damn baby you fine making sure your moles haven't gotten yeah bigger. making sure you don't have irregular moles honey i felt i, I felt something bite me i was checking to make sure you don't have bed bugs <laughs> i'm doing it for you your heart doing it for you. your heartbeats are regular everything about me is irregular Kiss me, you fool. I look at you. Calm down. <laughs> Sorry, that's I just, what I was giggling at. Either that or it's, it's like, the, what are you doing? Uh, I was just looking at my dick in the light. It's fantastic. It's amazing. Go back to sleep. Look at how incredible this is. I can't wait until social media is invented. <laughs> so many dick pics. So, so many dick pics. <laughs> also a campaign slogan. Ding. So many dick pics. <laughs> look at them Vivian titties. Noir, 2020. <laughs> so many dick pics. The detectives asked Kendall if Bundy had been with her on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, or on the day that Nasland and Ott were abducted. She confirmed that he had not actually been with her, furthering their thoughts that Bundy was, indeed, their man. In September of that year, Bundy had decided to sell his Volkswagen. Utah police had it impounded and dismantled to be thoroughly searched, and they were able to find hair matching samples taken from Karen Campbell's body. They were also able to identify strands of hair that were, quote, microscopically indistinguishable from Melissa Smith and Carol Durange. A collection of hair strands from three different victims who had never met one another was noted as, quote, a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity by FBI lab specialist Robert Neal. It wasn't long after that that Ted Bundy was placed into a lineup. 
On October 2nd, Deranche was able to almost immediately identify Bundy as Officer Roseland, and witnesses from Bountiful were able to identify him as the stranger at the high school auditorium. While there was not enough evidence to link Bundy to Deborah Kent, as the only remains found of her were skeletal fragments near the school, there was still more than enough evidence to charge Bundy with kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the Deranche case. He didn't remain in jail for long. His parents paid his $15,000 bail, and Bundy went back to Seattle to stay with Kendall. Police in Seattle did not have enough evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but they kept a close eye on him nonetheless. In November of that year, the three chief investigators in Bundy's case, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado all met in Aspen, Colorado and exchanged information with several different detectives and prosecutors from five different states. Everyone left what would later be known as the Aspen Summit, full well believing that they had found their murderer. Though they all agreed, they would need more hard evidence before they would be able to charge him. In February of 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durant kidnapping. His attorney, John O'Connell, had advised Bundy to waive his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial, or trial by judge, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found Bundy guilty of kidnapping and assault. He was sentenced in June of 76 to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. I would also like to point out that Judge Stuart Hansen was only 37 at the time. Right. Wow. That was one thing what that I was like... What am I doing with my life? <laughs> he was a judge. That was one thing that I was like, I was doing my notes and I was like, is that is that important enough to note? Yeah, yeah, maybe a side note. <laughs> I can be a very judgy person. I think I can be a judge. I mean, I, oh, am, I, mean, very, I, I am very judgy. <laughs> I was going to say, I judge everyone. <laughs> I just love that his attorney was like, hey, 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 there's negative hey, press. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't do that. Judge trial is the best. <laughs> judge guilty. Guilty. <laughs> well, meep. <laughs> do you think judges are exempt from jury duty? Oh, uh, uh, execute. Uh, well, not an executioners. Um, butchers used to be because they were anyone that worked in a slaughterhouse or a butcher because they figured you could butcher somebody. They were exempt from jury duty for a really long time because they figured you didn't have empathy. If that's you could butcher an animal, then you didn't have empathy. Wow. That's amazing, and I'm very happy. You can butcher someone in the courtroom. There you go. <laughs> But sure then, I mean, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot. Or just bring in a headless chicken and just sit there <laughs> in a bl- in a bloody bear costume and just breathe heavily on the stand. Just yeah. like this. Just... You know, it's crazy. My brother has a costume I could totally borrow. It's a bear yeah, costume. Yeah, just put, like, blood on it apron. and just hold a, a headless chicken in one hand and just sit there. You don't even there. have to say anything. They would no. just look at you and go, just fucking go. You just literally sit there with a knife and a headless chicken going... You're excused. (laughs) And please hang around, though, because we've got some questions. (laughs) Nancy Grace would like an interview. (laughs) Turns out there was actually a a killer in the area that was wearing a bear costume and carrying a chicken around. And (laughs) now you just totally put yourself right in the middle of all that. (laughs) I mean, I feel like they're so worried when it comes to juries, you could literally just go in with no eyebrows. Uh, You (laughs) could. Or either that, or they're just like, oh, okay, you're impartial. You're not going to lift an eyebrow at somebody strangely. I, I pull out a marker. <laughs> just angry ones? <laughs> angry <laughs> eyebrows. Um, oh, you're dismissed. You are dismissed, sir. <laughs> Please leave. You are clearly prejudiced, sir. Dismissed. <laughs> that October, Bundy would also be charged with the murder of Karen Campbell, and after waiving extradition proceedings, he was transferred to Aspen in January of 1977. 
In June of 1977, Bundy was transported from the Garfield County Jail to the Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. He had elected to serve as his own attorney, which excused him from wearing shackles or handcuffs. Whether this was a premeditated decision based on that fact remains a mystery. During a court recess, he asked to go to the courthouse library in order to research his case. Bundy, having proven himself to be fairly mild-mannered and not a cause for concern for the guards, was able to slip out of view behind a bookcase. He opened a window and jumped from the second story to the ground. Bundy had escaped. And that is all the time we have for this week, Spooky Nation. Don't forget to follow us on social media and on our website, thespookyshow.com. And if you're interested in any of the books we have used as sources in this episode, such as The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule, or Ted Bundy, Conversations with a Killer by Stephen G. Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth, check out audible.com slash thisspookyshow, where you can sign up for a 14-day free trial and receive a free audiobook of your choice. Sounds like a good deal to me. Right? Free book. (laughs) Free book. Whoop free whoop. book. Actually, uh, furthermore, not only do you get a free book for signing up, uh, you also get two more from a select monthly changeout that they do. Yeah. Uh, you get to pick from four to six books on average. You get to pick two of them. Yeah, the Audible Originals, which are fantastic. Yeah. I've listened nice. to many of them, and they are great. Oh, always good to hear. Join us in two weeks for the conclusion of Ted Bundy's Twisted Tale, where we discuss what happened following his escape, the murders that occurred after, and the capture of the man whose crimes would shock the country in It's Like Changing a Tire, Theodore Robert Bundy, Lady Killer, Part 2. Stay spooky, friends.